Welcome to this Forthright Radio for October 6, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. With us for the full hour is award-winning journalist, documentary film producer, and Harper's Washington, D.C. editor, Andrew Coburn. For more than four decades, he has focused on national security, not just of the United States, but of the Soviet Union as well, beginning with his Peabody Award-winning 1981 PBS film, The Red Army, which was the first in-depth study of deficiencies in the Soviet military. He has covered the wars in Afghanistan since the 1980s with his wife, Leslie Coburn. In 2009, they produced the film American Casino on the financial collapse of 2007. His eighth book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, has just been published by Verso. In it, he asserts that, quote, The record shows America's Afghan war was nothing other than a prolonged and entirely successful operation to loot the U.S. taxpayer. At least a quarter of a million Afghans, not to mention 3,500 U.S. and Allied troops, paid a heavier price, end of quote. We spoke with Andrew Coburn on September 29, 2021, as the Senate Armed Services Committee was grilling Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley about the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years and trillions of dollars spent, which General Milley characterized as, quote, a logistical success, but a strategic failure. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Andrew Coburn. Thank you for joining us today. Andrew, you come from an illustrious British journalism family. A quick look at your Wikipedia page reveals that your father, Claude Coburn, was, quote, a communist author and journalist, end quote. And your late brother, Alexander Coburn, was a media presence in Mendocino County, whether for his writings in the Anderson Valley Advertiser or as a guest on KZYX. I had the pleasure of being his dinner guest when he was covering a trial in Lake County I was assisting with in the mid-90s. I can testify that he was a very good cook, as well as his other admirable attributes. And your other brother, Patrick Coburn, was our guest on Forthright Radio in July 2020 when his book, War in the Age of Trump, The Fall of ISIS, The Betrayal of the Kurds, The Conflict with Iran was published. And you've been married to journalist Leslie Coburn since 1977, and Laura and Stephanie Flanders are your nieces. So in addition to admiring your own work, most recently with the publication of your book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, it is personally gratifying to have this opportunity to hear your thoughts after your own decades-long and illustrious career in journalism, both print and film. However, there is one thing from your Wikipedia page that I feel obliged to share with our listeners. It says, quote, The Coburns are related to Sir George Coburn, 10th Baronet, who ordered the burning of Washington in 1814, end quote. Considering how much of what you report in this book about D.C. politics and policies is, or ought to be, incendiary, and I mean that in the most positive way, it certainly reignited my indignation repeatedly. I wonder if you can comment on your familial origins and how they relate to your work. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sir George Coburn, a family member of which we're very proud, particularly because not only did he, it is true, as the history books record, that he, you know, he burned Washington and burned the White House and the cap at the Congress as well, by the way, that he did it with an army or part of his army were slaves he had freed and trained and armed. They were called the colonial marines. He'd made them into soldiers and he took them with them to Washington and they played a very heroic role in the Battle of Bladensburg where the American forces were defeated outside Washington. 
Then when he marched into Washington, he took a squad from this regiment of freed slaves to the White House and they took part in burning it down. People say the White House was built by slaves and they ought to know that it was burnt down by slaves, ex recently ex-slaves, freed thanks to my distinguished relative, Admiral Sir George. So I'm proud of him and the, and the whole role he played. And any comments about growing up in such a family? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it was sort of, you know, almost with our mother's milk that we, you know, we were radicals. I mean, I don't know how, you know, no one ever said, oh, you have to be a radical. I mean, no, you have to be against the power. It would just seem, it seemed obvious, sort of something I fell into. So with the result that my, as, I, as you say, my, you know, my father was a radical journalist, my brothers have both taken a principled stand of my nieces and I myself and my wife who's done you know as natural I should marry Leslie who you know has done incredible work around the world exposing everything from the role of the U.S. in actually supporting the Khmer Rouge the role of the U.S. in Afghanistan in supporting the drug lords who were our allies there And in Central America, you know, where we worked together quite a lot. No, not Central America. Uh, she worked in Central America. I worked with her in Colombia and in the Middle East. So, yeah, I mean, this is the <laughs> this has been the trend in my family, and I don't regret any of it. Well, I did not use the term incendiary earlier lightly. Let me quote from your book. Quote, the record shows America's Afghan war was nothing other than a prolonged and entirely successful operation to loot the U.S. taxpayer. At least a quarter of a million Afghans, not to mention 3,500 U.S. and allied troops, paid a heavier price. End of that quote. Andrew, you began covering Afghanistan back in the 80s during the Soviet invasion and occupation. So you have a much longer and broader experience than most about the U.S. role in the creation of the resistance to the Soviets and the rise of extremist groups such as al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Please share your thoughts on this. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole point, I mean, what's so sort of lamentable, especially with that figure you quoted of a quarter of a million Afghans, at least, and the thousands of U.S. and allied troops who died is how really pernicious the whole involvement with Afghanistan has been from sponsoring really terrorist operations in even before the Soviet invasion in 1980, which were designed to, you know, lure the Soviets in and give them, in the words of President Carter's national security advisor, their own Vietnam. I mean, really kicking off that war. And when I, I tell the story in the book of an American diplomat who tried to report or did report that a CIA-sponsored warlord was letting off terrorist bombs in Kabul and killing scores of civilians, and he got reprimanded for reporting the news, which they knew was accurate, but it was revealing that their man was, you know, this bloodthirsty terrorist. And they they liked him, Gulbuddin Hekmatia, he was called. They supported him all through the 80s, gave him enormous sums of money and weapons, which he didn't use much in fighting the Soviets. He was using them to fight fellow Afghans. He was our guy. And then, you know, so we, you know, our role has always been basically on the wrong side in Afghanistan. And as I explained in the book, Our role after 9-11 was, was to empower, to put in power, after we conquered uh, Afghanistan in 2001, was to support and keep in power basically a bunch of gangsters, of, of drug lords who were making huge amounts of money, and, you know, basically all in support of or part and parcel of a war that was making enormous sums of money for Americans, in terms of the, what's the price tag we hear about now, a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars, with everything thrown in, that money went into American pockets. I asked once, I asked John Sopko, who was the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, who was like the Cassandra, as I called him, of this war, because he kept pointing out what was happening, that the money was mostly being wasted or stolen. 
And I said, how much of this money never even leaves Washington? And he said, oh, a huge amount. The check would go from the U.S. Treasury to a contractor who would spend it on salaries and studies and things without ever even setting foot on an airplane. And then subcontracts would flow down the chain to Afghanistan. As I say, it was a hugely successful effort. People say this was a terrible this was the gang who couldn't shoot straight, how we really messed up in Afghanistan. I think we performed very efficiently, if as long as you understand what the object of the exercise was, which was to make a great deal of money. Well, we've covered the corruption and political control by the military-industrial complex many times over the years, but you've brought some new research and ways to think about it. You use a term that's new to me, the military-industrial virus. And I quote you here again, the U.S. defense complex is best thought of not as an organization, but as a living, insatiable creature dedicated only to its own defense and power. End of that quote. And even the jaded among us assume that at least some of the money is prioritized toward protecting our troops. But I'm going to quote you again. An essential truth about the U.S. military machine, which is that war fighting efficiency has a low priority by comparison with considerations of personal and internal bureaucratic advantage. End of that quote. And then you quote a study proposing this is because of, quote, the American cultural disposition favoring technology. All right, so you cite the example of the demise of the A-10 Warthog for higher tech, more expensive but highly fallible aircraft. Would you expand on that, please? Sure. I mean, it's a very instructive example, which I spend a lot of time in the book talking about, because it really sums up the whole system in a way in one particular horror story. The A-10 plane was designed specifically to support troops on the ground, basically be another sort of weapon at the disposal of the troops on the ground. I mean, it belonged to the Air Force, but when troops were facing an enemy in some battle ground level, the A-10 was just carefully designed so that the pilot could actually really see what's going on. All sorts of things enable him to fly low and slow and really understand what was happening. The Air Force, although it had commissioned this plane Basically, it felt it thought the army was trying to steal the close support mission, which was true, it was, and therefore the budget that went with it. So they commissioned this plane to do the job. And once they succeeded in the main objective, which was to ward off the U.S. Army, then they really lost interest in this plane and did, did their best to get rid of it, really. It was sort of hateful to them for all sorts of reasons. It wasn't a supersonic nuclear bomber, which is what they really like, and it it was kind of ugly, and it was, but worst of all, it reminded them, it was a living, breathing reminder of their ancient history as simply an arm of the army, which they'd fought long and hard and successfully to be free of, so to be an independent service with their own power own and own budget. So the net result is that troops, well, I tell two stories in the book about about what the net result of all this has been. One is one concerns one tiny little sort of massacre in Afghanistan among many thousands of such massacres, which was an Afghan family who died because and the someone somewhere miles away had decided this was an enemy. This was being used by the enemy to fight American troops. And so they'd sent two A-10s to destroy it. And the A-10s, doing what they could do, just flew low and slow and said, no, it's a family. It's just an ordinary family. It's coming on to dusk. They're bringing their animals into the compound for the night, the sheep and the goats and the donkeys. That's all that's going on. The children are helping. And they were told, no, no, we our information is, no, this is an enemy you know, force. Destroy it now. And they said, no, no, we, we can see that's not the case. So this argument went on back and forth. And then suddenly a B-1 bomber, another voice comes on, which is a B-1 bomber miles overhead, they're saying, we're, we'll do it, in words, <laughs> ready to copy, meaning we'll do it, we'll do it. So they get the order. They duly drop nine tons of high explosives on this farmhouse and destroy a family. 
The reaction, of course, was to cover it up. But I know exactly what happened from good sources on all sides. No adjustments were being made. The pilots were told not to talk about it. The second example I gave is of American troops this time who were bombed by a B-1, which was meant to be supporting them, but because the B-1 couldn't see them with all its fancy technology and everything, didn't know where the American troops it was supposed to be supporting were, so it dropped several tons of bombs on them and killed five of them. And the result of the reaction of the Air Force in that, because it's not, doesn't look, who cares about a few Afghans, but killing Americans is bad news, meant to be bad news. So they set up an investigation to obscure what really happened and blame everything on the unfortunate young army officer who was in command on the ground and effectively destroyed his career because who cares about the truth? Who cares about keeping this guy, young officer in the army? He was a you know, very capable, brave, dedicated, smart young man who you know, his career was destroyed by this because these idiots had killed his men and he was driven away. So these are two very instructive, I mean, I have much, much more. I hope people read the book in Spoils of War, but these, these really sum up what the problem is. Well, let's just do one more smaller, in some ways, aspect of this. So that's like the high-tech version. And listeners can imagine how things can go wrong, the greater the degree of technology. But you point out the corruption that produced helmets that actually enhance the effects of explosions. Tell us about that. I'm glad you bring this up because there's a helmet bureaucracy. The whole of military procurement is a bureaucracy, an entrenched bureaucracy that's involved in this. And for army helmets or, you know, Maria helmets worn by people in combat are obviously essential and have been essential since the Trojan War. They tried to drop them in the 19th century and then very hurriedly had to reinstitute helmets with the First World War. So you need a good helmet and the helmet should protect you from shrapnel and should protect you from blast. So they designed a helmet made of, you know, supposedly bulletproof Kevlar. And they said, okay, we found a great way, a really good helmet. We've redesigned the helmet. The old helmets, ones you see in World War II movies, they work pretty well. And they were quite useful for other things. You could actually cook up a meal in one, which was one of the things they did. You could, you know, keep your cigarettes in one. The new helmet, you couldn't do any of those things, but it was supposedly bulletproof and really should reduce the effects of blast. And blast became the big problem with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan because the principal enemy weapon was these IEDs. And it turned out that the way the helmet was shaped and furthermore, the sort of lack of the kind of padding inside actually worked to enhance the effects of blast. And people started to say, wait a minute, we're having terrible sort of head injuries from blast. We think it's the helmet. And the army refused to listen. No, no, our helmet is fine. Our helmet is absolutely fine. We've had the finest minds in helmet design working on this. And when whistleblowers tried to go public with this news, they were fired. <laughs> this was, again, I'm glad you point out, it's not high tech, it's low tech. To the degree there's any high tech involved, of course, the material in this helmet is made of Kevlar, and it's sort of woven Kevlar. And the contractor that was producing the Kevlar, producing the material, was skimping, was making it of, think of it as a weave, and they were sort of weaving with fewer threads so they could skim off and make more money. And the result was the thing wasn't as bulletproof or as shrapnel-proof as it should have been. It was thinner. And when people complained about that, they were fired. So at a basic level as a helmet, the system works as usual. And people die, people make money, and people who try to point out the truth get destroyed or fired. Yes, it's a, unfortunately an old story. I mean, I recall history of in the Civil War of guns that were sold that misfired and, and then they were sent to. Anyway, that's it's not a new story, but it's really 
unfortunate. Like I said, it's easy to be jaded about these things, but we really ought not to be. Human lives are at stake. And I'm with Virginia Woolf when she says something along the lines of her people are all the people of the world, not just the British people. And with the recent rise of nationalism in the United States, I think it's even more imperative that we resist that tendency now. So I have to pause for just a second to settle down a little. (laughs) I mean it when I said I find it incendiary what you have to report. I do have one question about the title of the book, The Spoils of War, Andrew Coburn, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. I initially assumed you meant the spoils as in like what one gets from any war that, you know, loot or whatever like that. But then the more I read your book, the more I saw how the actions of the policies of administration after administration brings ruin to so many, including our own country. So spoil in that sense as well. Did you mean it that way? Actually, I'm sort of meant it both ways, really. My first impulse was that what you originally suggested, but I mean, really, I had the same, same kind of reaction as you once I thought about it some more. I think both interpretations apply. Well, just as an example, you mentioned that poor family bringing their animals into their compound at dusk and getting wiped out. Well, for each one of those families in similar circumstances, that creates such grief and fury and desire for vengeance that it totally tends to make people join anyone that will resist, whether it's the Soviets or the United States, or our allies. So in that sense, it's a spoil. Even if you're not considering the welfare of anyone else, it's counterproductive for our own national interests, because we're just creating more enemies. Well, that's right. I mean, it's creating more enemies is really, to the people I'm writing and talking about, is a benefit. It leads to a very bad result. Ultimately, as happened in Afghanistan recently, I mean, it seems very clear to me that the reason the Taliban, who are a very unpleasant bunch, must be said, after being driven out in 2001, the reason they revived and eventually have conquered Afghanistan was because of our behavior. Every account I've read of why people joined the Taliban the last few years was due to family members being killed. I mean, the magazine I write for, Harper's, they had a very good piece a month or so ago called And the Raids Came by Andrew McQuilty, Australian journalist. It's a kind of one family, members which joined the Taliban because, not because they were sort of necessarily attracted so much to Taliban ideology, but because an American-sponsored raid, bombing raid, had killed half the family. So what are they going to, you know, what do you expect them to do? This is all very specific. And that's repeated again and again. And the one way to ensure adamant enemy resistance is to bomb them. It doesn't defeat the enemy, but it sure keeps them fighting. We're speaking with Andrew Coburn. And as I mentioned, his latest book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Andrew, there's so much more in this book. We've got to get off of this particular topic. But let's talk about more current events. We're recording this interview on September 28th, 2021, as General Mark Milley is testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee about his contacting the Chinese army chief twice in the final days of the Trump administration to de-escalate Chinese fears of a U.S. attack. And it brought up the question of his actions on nuclear launch procedures. He said he had a responsibility to insert himself into those procedures in order to be able to perform his role to advise the president properly. Now, whether you believe or not, that's what he was actually doing. It brings up a topic that you cover in your book, and that is the nuclear chain of command. Would you please share a bit of the history of this highly secretive but potentially catastrophic issue? Yeah, well, it's all based on this notion of a nuclear Pearl Harbor, that somehow the president 
has to be ready to fire our missiles or launch our bombers or, um, in retaliation for an American attack. And that by having that system, that dissuades the other side from contemplating such an attack. It's obviously silly because you don't have to sort of respond instantly to deter the other side. I mean, if the Russians decided to launch missiles in America and destroy American cities or whatever, they could know perfectly well that sooner or later, it doesn't have to be in the next half hour, the Americans are going to respond. But it's a great way of building up a huge very complicated and incredibly expensive apparatus which is in place to enable this instant response, this launch under attack. And that's been the doctrine really since the early, well, since forever, actually, essentially, the notion that if we think the missiles are on the way, we have to launch before the enemy missiles come. And the military continually works at refining that system to make it easier and easier to streamline it so that we can absolutely ensure that nothing will get in the way of the president giving the order to launch our responsive attacks. As I point out in the book, this has led to near disasters <laughs> several times, most specifically, I think, in 1979, when the missile warning people said, oh, there are Russian missiles on the way. They woke up Brzezinski, President Carter's national security advisor. He was on the point of waking up the president and saying, you have three minutes to decide what to do, when he got another call saying, oops, sorry, it's all a mistake, computer glitch, Russian missiles aren't on the way. I mean, we were three minutes. The same thing has happened on the Russian side. We we know now, too. So this is, you know, horrifyingly dangerous. I tell the story, actually, in the book of someone who was in charge of it all, who denounced it and was therefore ignored, General Lee Butler, who was in charge of all U.S. Strategic Air Command and then renamed STRATCOM, U.S. Strategic Nuclear Forces, and he came to the conclusion, having had as intimate a view of all this as anyone could ever, and he was in charge, and he concluded that it was immoral and it was evil and nuclear weapons, the whole system of deterrence should be dismantled immediately. And he was a great American hero, but of course, <laughs> had no effect. <laughs> the machine went on, you know, marched on, and we are still now today in this terrifying position of launch under attack, that the missiles are all on ready alert. There's no need for that at all, but they are. And therefore, the slightest, if things go wrong, if there's an incorrect warning, some idiot presses the button, I mean, the idiot president, press, figuratively speaking, presses the button, and we're all doomed. You actually recount, I don't know what you call it, the, the tale of someone who was in the chain of command in some of the land base missiles. I'm not sure if it was Montana or Nebraska, but anyway, he had actually figured out a way. It supposedly fails safe because it requires two people to agree to actually launch them. But he had figured out a way to actually make that possible. We won't go into that now. But I think that there's a certain amount of complacency that has developed I suppose since the demise of the Soviet Union, there was a great deal of international resistance in the 1980s, I suppose because of a fear of Ronald Reagan and what he might do potentially. But that has died down now. But as I said, General Mark Milley inserted himself into the situation around the election and, and soon after the election, saying something like, be sure I am notified before anything happens regarding a nuclear launch. I wonder if you have any comments or opinions on that particular brouhaha that we have right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, there's a famous precedent for this, which was uh, in the waning days, the Nixon administration, the Secretary of Defense, James Schlesinger, called all the senior U.S. commanders and said, check with me if you get any unusual orders from the White House. He was frightened that Nixon might do this. As for Milley, he's not in the chain, nuclear chain of command. The nuclear chain of command goes from the president really to the head of STRATCOM. And there's a very well-oiled system I mean, a very well paper well oiled system anyway, by which the orders can go immediately to the launch control sites. 
various headquarters across the United States, which will then pass on the orders to the actual missile silos to launch. It's not clear to me, whatever Milley says, thought he was doing, to what degree he could have actually interfered with these sort of orders. The worry about what Trump might do has been around while Trump was in office, all the time he was in office, so much so that the Congress actually had not a commander, but the former commander of Stratcom up to testify. And they said, basically, can Trump launch? And they said, oh, no, 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 he can't do that. And they said, well, why not? And they said, well, we disobey the order. So the only assurance we had that Trump could not blow up the world was that the senior officers would mutiny. But there's no record of them ever doing any such thing. (laughs) And they were all picked for their willingness to go along. So whatever Millie says he could have done, or even would have done, I'm not so sure. I don't find the story reassuring at all. You had mentioned earlier that there's tremendous competition between the branches, and certainly in terms of the nuclear weapons, that is true. And I love this quote you have from Ivan Selin, who was a Pentagon official in the 1960s. He said they required weapons that don't work to meet threats that don't exist. And you go into hypersonic glide missiles. Would you explain to our listeners what turned out to be a dead end, I believe? Am I right about that part? Well, it's bound to be. They're still spending billions of dollars on it, but it is a dead end. Well, let me explain. Let me answer the question first. A hypersonic weapon, the actual official explanation is a weapon that travels. Hypersonic speed is five times or more the speed of sound, which is what roughly 700 miles an hour at sea level. So take it from there. And they talk about Mark 5 means five times the speed of sound. So they talk about 6, 7, Mark 8, Mark 9. And the whole idea is... Whereas ballistic missiles, which also go very fast, the ICBMs we have pointed at Russia, their trajectory is predictable. It goes up on a curve and then comes down. And once you watch the first sort of phase of its flight, you can see where it's going and where it's going to be at any point along its flight curve. And therefore, it theoretically, they believe it would be possible, it is possible to shoot them down which is not really the case for reasons I could explain. So uh, the beauty of these so-called hypersonic weapons, or alleged beauty, is that they get launched and then sort of get taken, boosted up to the top of the atmosphere to 18, 90,000 feet, where there's still some atmosphere, but quite thin. And once launched from the, a booster rocket, these hypersonic glide weapons, they sort of shoot across the upper layers of the atmosphere and they can maneuver. There's enough air so the control surfaces, like on an airplane, flaps and so forth, you can move about in an unpredictable, to anyone who's watching, way. So therefore it makes it much harder to shoot it down because you don't know where it's going to be during its flight. What's wrong with this is that the whole supposition is that once you start maneuvering, you set up a drag. I mean, it slows the plane down. So the more you maneuver, the shorter the range. So it's not going to get to its target if you want to do it over a very long range. Moreover, it has to be, I mean, I don't want to get too much in technological weeds. It has to be shaped in a very sort of streamlined shape, much more so than a ballistic missile to stop it heating up too much. Space capsules are shaped in a way so the heat gets absorbed and a heat shielding gets burnt off. You couldn't do that with one of these missiles. So it has to be, you have to take into account it's going to get very, very hot friction with the atmosphere so it has to be very streamlined so any kind of you can't have much of a payload and you can't have really a big problem with any radars or sensors that has bought. anyway i mean for for a whole host of reasons it's a really stupid idea nevertheless the russians putin said oh we've got this wonderful hypersonic weapon so we don't have to worry about american missile defenses then the Americans said, oh, the Russians, they're developing these hypersonic weapons. We've got to do it, too. So now you have a hypersonic weapons race. The problem with the initial Russian statement, Putin's statement about American missile defenses, is they don't work even against ballistic missiles. We tried and tried and tried and tried to make them work. We spend billions of dollars a year, 20, 30 billion dollars a year on them, and they still don't work. They 
fail tests because the reason they will never work is that once you're in space, even a balloon, a helium balloon like you have at a children's birthday party is going to travel at the speed at which it's launched in the vacuum of space. So all you have to do if you're firing missiles at someone and ballistic missiles on the toward the other side of the world and don't want them to be shot down is to have them loose off lots of little balloons. And then the defenses are going to see not one attacking missile, but dozens, maybe even hundreds, and they don't know which is the real one. So that's the weapon that don't work. So both sides are developing weapons that don't work to meet a threat that doesn't exist, which in turn has been developed to meet a weapon that doesn't work. The missile defense doesn't work. Therefore, the Russian hypersonic developed to defeat that, and that that doesn't work. And then the hypersonic weapons we developed to defeat the Russian hypersonic weapons, they don't work either, if you can follow all that. Failure is no problem for the military-industrial virus because whether it succeeds or not, profit is built in. And there was a moment when it was clear that the Soviet Union was no more, that there was serious panic among the military-industrial complex. But they were able to manage that just fine. And one of the ways they did that was through NATO expansion. You go into this in your book, Andrew. Would you briefly talk about that process? At the end of the Cold War, I mean, at the time of the collapse or just before the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. made a deal with the Soviets, which was that if they withdrew from Eastern Europe, withdrew from the armies they had in their version of NATO, the Warsaw Pact, if they pulled their forces out of Eastern Europe, we would not, repeat, not expand NATO into Eastern Europe. And on that basis, the Russians did retreat. So within a very short space of time, the Americans started talking about the necessity of expanding NATO into Eastern Europe. And among those promoting that, or principally among those promoting that, was the American defense industry, but particularly the Lockheed Martin Corporation, which was and is the largest defense corporation we have. And there was a thing called the Committee to Expand NATO, a sort of lobby that was set up in Washington with all sorts of people, Republicans and Democrats on it. And the person organizing this and running it was a vice president of the Lockheed Corporation, Bruce Jackson. He'll tell you with a straight face that his Lockheed job had nothing to do with his NATO activities. Yeah, sure. And the Lockheed Corporation wanted to sell F-16 fighter planes to Eastern Europe. And marching alongside them were the rest of the defense industry who saw this untapped market of Eastern European countries, whose own military, of course, was eager to have American weapons and shiny new weapons. And they were told, well, they couldn't really have all these American weapons unless they joined NATO. And they were all very happy to do that. And all their militaries were. Meanwhile, President Clinton was persuaded that particularly bringing Poland into NATO would be a political advantage to him because he would garner lots of Polish votes in places like Milwaukee in the 1996 election. So Clinton, that was great for him. So he well, he thought that was great news. So he was eager to push to expand NATO, particularly to bring Poland in. Poland duly joined NATO, bought lots of F-16s, as did other Eastern European countries. They joined NATO with the predictable, entirely predictable result that the Russians, furious, first of all, that they've been double-crossed, but also conscious now they had on their border a lot of members of the American alliance, NATO, guaranteed Russian hostility for decades to come. And so it built in instability in Europe, guaranteed further American weapon sales to NATO, with us always sort of telling the NATO people they had to spend more on defense, i.e. buy more American weapons. So it was a very successful operation, and it was not you know, not good for the cause of peace <laughs> and not good for whatever else we might want to spend money on, but certainly good for the military-industrial complex. I have to say, I cringe every time someone refers to the defense 
Department or the defense industry because the vast proportion is weighted towards offense. So anyway, I just have to say that to get it off my chest. <laughs> yeah, we used to call it the War Department, remember? I do remember that, and that was quite the coup to change that to the Department of Defense. It was a very important psychological turn. There's just so much more in your book, Andrew, but I want to come to more or less the present and the aftermath of the terrorist attack on 9-11 and the work that the families of the victims of that day have, we're talking 20 years now, they have struggled to try to get information about the role of the Saudi Arabian government or entities anyway in the events that led to 9-11. And you have some very interesting information about that struggle. And I wish you would share that with us and particularly the role that Robert Mueller, who was the director of the FBI at the time, played in preventing information from being explored. Yes. I mean, the thing was that I mean, and much of this has emerged through this lawsuit or lawsuits brought by family members and also a bunch of insurance companies who had to shell out of 9-11 would quite like to see some of their money back. What we learned is that principally is that the local FBI office, particularly, you know, some of the hijackers were based in San Diego, had very good information about these people, these you know weird people who were up to something and furthermore were seen to be agents of the Saudi government. And two of them, two of the hijackers had actually been living with an FBI informant. And the story is that he never told the FBI. I wonder about that. So the whole history of the FBI, the so-called investigation of the hijackers and their links to the Saudi government, the effort of the FBI throughout has been to suppress this information and suppress the results of their own investigations. They had some very capable people who flew out to San Diego right after the attacks and gathered a great deal of information. They were expressly discouraged from pushing this up the chain and making any of this public because, A, it showed the FBI in a very bad light, and B, perhaps even more importantly, it countered U.S. government policy, which was to cover up the role of the Saudi government in attacking us. <laughs> there was a shocking photograph soon after 9-11 of President Bush and the Saudi ambassador, Prince Bandar, relaxing on the White House veranda. I think they were smoking cigars. I mean, just outrageous. This, these people had just attacked us. That ambassador's wife had actually sent a check to one of the hijackers. <laughs> um, and yet, for the sake really of maintaining our very profitable arms exports to Saudi Arabia and, you know, all the other money we make out of Saudi Arabia, the millions and millions of dollars they pour into Washington and for lobbying and, and as well as all the contracts and the whole relationship with the oil industry, you know, we let it pass. So we went off and invaded Afghanistan instead and then Iraq, where we knew perfectly well, as you say, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. What else did we need to know? As I mentioned, these families have been struggling for 20 years now, but they have recently had a couple of victories in court on September 17th, 2021, in-ray terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. The court set a schedule for expert discovery proceedings in the actions against Saudi Arabia and others. So they have to produce information, expert reports and things like that, that they have managed to have suppressed all this time. And I'm not sure if this is the same instance or not, but the headline is the Second Circuit reinstates insurer's suit against Saudi banks stemming from 9-11 terrorist attacks. And one of the issues that you report on was the problem with the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act. And these families were actually able to struggle through Congress. And everyone knows what a trip that is. They finally managed to get the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act passed only to have Barack Obama veto it. And then the Senate overruled his veto 97 to 1. So 
progress is slow, but with persistence, it's possible. We only have a few minutes left, but you talk about the very perfect instrument is what you call that. Basically, it's mass starvation as a result of the U.S. use of sanctions. And you note that in 2013, the United States was putting sanctions on 23 countries. Now, in Yemen, is the one that is the most horrifying to me right now. I wish you would expand on what you have to say about the use of sanctions. In a way, it's become our principal weapon of enforcement around the globe. I mean, we hear a lot about sort of we go and bomb countries for reasons you know I've been talking about, but sanctions has become it's particularly so horrible. Andrew, excuse me, would you very briefly explain what sanctions are and how they work? Sure, uh, sanctions as well. Uh, when we say it, really think of a blockade. We say this country is banned. Trade in some particular aspect of a of a country is banned. Americans may not sell arms to such and such a country. I mean, a classic example is actually Kennedy, one of the early sanctions actually was in 1961, John F. Kennedy instituted a ban on trade with Cuba. And actually before he before it came into effect, he sent out his press secretary to buy him 1,200 Cuban cigars. You cut off trade. You blockade a country. The British did this in World War One to win the peace to starve Germany, which they did pretty successfully. So they prevent any food. Now we're doing it with, as you said, a whole host of countries where they are prevented from trading with us. But what we've done is make it even more sort of lethal and powerful because the country can say, okay, fine, we won't trade with America. We'll trade with you know Germany. But what we've done is we've gone to the Germans and everyone else and said, if we catch you trading with, say, Iran, country we've sanctioned, if we catch you, if we catch your banks having any, any, because, you know, all trade has to go through a bank, your banks having anything to do with trade with Iran, as an example, we will punish that bank. We will not allow that bank to, you know, to trade in the in New York. And, you know, New York is the center of the global financial system. And furthermore, even if we allow them to do that, we will find them enormous amounts. And that is how sanctions have become particularly vicious, because it means that the whole world, even other countries say, hey, we don't see why Cuba or Iran or, you know, Yemen or these kind of should be sanctioned. We think it's cruel and horrible. But, hey, we have to go along because otherwise our banks will be prevented from trading in New York. And then we're, it brings our economy to a halt. So that is what we do. And it is used. I mean, what is clear, it's always they always say because of the behavior of the wicked rulers of Iran or Syria or Cuba or name any, <laughs> name any of these countries, we are sanctioning this country. And then they'll, they'll, they'll you know, repent of their wicked ways and do what we tell them. Well, invariably, we, you know, the, the, those rulers will always personally be OK. They'll always find a way to get their cigars or their whatever, their you know, their money. Their thing. It's the ordinary people who suffer. And that's the notorious example is, of course, Iraq, where we sanctioned them viciously from 1990, actually, to 2003. Saddam Hussein was fine. He had all the palaces and whiskey he wanted or whatever. It was the ordinary people who suffered, including half a million Iraqi children who died as a result of this blockade, because basically there wasn't enough food, there weren't enough goods, there weren't enough medicines. Even though we always say we make exceptions for medicines, in practice, medicines and other necessary humanitarian goods, they get sanctioned, they suffer the effects of sanctions too, for re in ways that I explain. If you, people who read my book and read that particular chapter, a very perfect instrument. So, and, you know, and horrifyingly, as I hope everyone should remember, when Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was asked about sanctions on Iraq and so it was asked, well, you know, half a million children at least have died. Do you think it was worth it? And she, she actually said the price, we think the price was worth it. People were put on trial at Nuremberg for <laughs> things like that. 
And I think I'd look forward to the day, probably without too much hope, but still it's a hope that people like Madeleine Albright will stand in the dock one day and be made to answer for things like that. So sanctions, and now we you know we're sanctioning Syria. So we're saying, okay, we are supporting the opposition to the wicked dictator Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And to that end, we have now particularly intense list of sanctions called the Caesar Acts, which are actually affecting all Syrians, including the opposition Syrians that we claim to cherish and support. They're all starving too, thanks to sanctions. So it's like, really, they're the very much the equivalent and almost as cruel in a way as mass bombing, because it affects civilians, particularly and particularly poor civilians, and particularly weak civilians, vulnerable civilians like children. I mean, we wage war on millions and millions and millions of children around the world, thanks to sanctions. Well, Andrew Coburn, there's so much more in your book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. We are out of time, I very much regret to say. But I just want to give you a minute for final words to our listeners. I think resistance is always worth it. I mean, I think people should should be complaining loudly, long and loudly about sanctions and about the war machine that I've been talking about. I mean, just recently we had a effort in Congress to cut the defense budget. It failed, but I think it's the first time there's been a vote of this kind and we should redouble our efforts and you know let your elected representatives know that they should not be participating in war crimes, which have certainly the sanctions I'm talking about, and you should not be, for whatever reason, enabling this flow of our natural national resources into this vicious machine, the defense complex. And one last thing I'll say, and if a conservative says, but I believe in a strong military, we need to defend ourselves, point out to them that all this money goes to weaken the military. We buy $300 million nuclear bombers, to protect our troops and refuse to try and get rid of a $20 million plane that does protect our troops, because since the whole thing's geared towards money, it gives us a weak defense. And if you're arguing with a conservative, tell them that. Well, you lay it out in your book, The Spoils of War, Andrew Coburn. Thank you so much for your decades of work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Hey, it's been a pleasure, Joy. Thank you. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been author and Harper's DC editor Andrew Coburn, whose latest book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, published by Verso. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media, where you'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM. Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio from Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.